0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Sarah Chase. Sarah is an author, journalist and has worked as a political advisor. She writes primarily about the nature of corruption. Her books include Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security and most recently Everybody Knows Corruption. That's what it's called in America. In America it's called corruption in America and what's at stake. They come out in paperback or on paperback or as paperbacks on the 16th of November in the United States. Sebastian Junger recommended Sarah when he was on Under the Skin recently because I kept bringing up, I suppose, systemic corruption, the possibility of alternative systems. Eventually, Sebastian Junger, growing frustrated with questions I suppose he felt was outside of his area of expertise, recommended Sarah Chase, who was a fantastic interview, a lovely conversation, a kind Seeming woman who sometimes like I liked it when she said she lived in the woods. Jen yeah. filled her filled a bucket from a stream.
1: Yeah, she seems like she's a woman who went against the social norms.
0: She's gone against social norms, Jen. She's been to yeah. Afghanistan. She's been in the Pentagon.
1: She spoke consistently and for a long time.
0: Jen, you're not doing your lean into the mic there. I know <laughs> you told you're, me
1: last time not to lean in.
0: I, I've well, I do think you should <laughs> lean in. Even though I'm not listening to this on headphones, I imagine if I were, excuse me, that you would sound very distant. Can you hear me In fact, you're not in there. And neither am I, actually. No one's on. oh No on there. You can hear yeah, me. I just like turn like them it. off when
1: you're doing videos.
0: I actually feel a bit more involved now.
1: Do you want a jingle?
0: Yeah, go on. Banter, decanter. Canter, canter. Banter, you say?
1: Well, that's the first button on the box. <laughs> we're just reaching
0: for <laughs> Well, buttons. I can't
1: do comments.
0: No, we're not at that point yet. Well, no, I completely. could do yeah. a different sound. No, she was a pretty lovely woman. I really liked her. I was really sort of, and my affection for her grew over the course of this conversation. It's I like,
1: like a new group because you've now abandoned your walking group. And this is your Emical, Chris, Sebastian, Younger.
0: Did you Sarah know? Sarah Chase group. I actually did go for a walk with nick hayes the writer of the book of trespass who's one of the key members of that walking group uh robert mcfarlane came and saw me in cambridge so i have there's there's been no group walking um merlin sheldrake i've had no further and
1: you need rupert because that was the original walk remember that was the original walk plan
0: yeah he said that he would like, uh, take me to Evensong, an Anglican church, but I never never took him up on it. And also Satish Kumar was going to come around at the weekend for for a walk. I didn't do it. But I would after I said no, or that I was, you know, not available, I regretted it because I thought, he's done all those pilgrimages and everything. I bet I would have enjoyed that. It's hard, Jen. It's hard to... We work quite hard. It's very difficult to make the effort to go on a walk with what people. day of the week was
1: it? Saturday. What do you
0: do on Saturdays? Watch football. <laughs> For the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> was a lot. There was a lot going on, Jen. Plus also so, I've got children. Like the thing is is that my neutral or any parent's neutral involves so much in now with the 10 cats, because we've given away six. With the 10 cats, the two dogs, the two children, when work stops, reality starts. That's just what it's like now, Jen that's why i wish for you an abundant family life well why
1: don't you want cats because they'll scratch my chairs
0: why don't you want kids
1: because it's weird to decide to have a kid if you have no desire for it unless you're scared of something scared of regret you have a kid in doubt if Mm. you're scared of regret i've got a
0: lot of friends who've not had kids did you know that
1: yeah there's no need
0: right there's enough people now let them well if you really want
1: to have a kid then you should but like it's like saying Do you want to have that apple crumble, but you you don't want it? Why would you have it?
0: Especially if you had to look after that apple crumble for 40 years. Yeah, exactly. And I I don't want it.
1: And then it takes your money. And then what if you don't like it and it doesn't like you and then you die alone anyway, but no apple crumble.
0: Well, the apple crumble, I don't think, would be a lot of (laughs) comfort on a deathbed. Oh, sure. Maybe, maybe it'd be quite nice. (laughs) (laughs) I would like. I'd like to think that I'll have some sort of crumble, not just my deteriorating, entropying, atrophying rather body. All right. Yep. You don't have kids if you don't want. I don't
1: think chase has a kid. That's the vibe I got.
0: Mm, Yeah, I don't. A lot of people I know that don't have kids, as long as they're connected. I mean, but that's true of anybody who does or doesn't have kids. It's a good idea. You'd have to. I would say having had kids. Don't have kids. No, I'd say having having kids don't have kids unless you really, yeah, really that's, want kids. That's
1: why I know how big the commitment is. That's what I th- I don't think of it in a weird romantic way. I think that's
0: should, a huge commitment. Frankly, you shouldn't think about anything romantically, except you should approach things with gratitude and surrender, because otherwise you foreclose on possibilities. And I don't know about romanticism, because romanticism for me seems like an embellishment, But but could romanticism be seen as a kind of... A celebration of a beauty that is present, but that you may ignore if you're dominated by pragmatism.
1: I think, you yeah, you can romanticise what you have, but romanticising what you don't have is a bit weird.
0: It's masochistic. It's masochistic. All right, well, we've discussed that. Sarah Chase, though, like, this is a, I would say it's a really good conversation. I also felt I probably should have read her books before because... Even while I was having the conversation She's actually lived in Afghanistan During all of that tumult She's worked in the Pentagon well, There was other stuff as well that I got from her like She's lived a real life, hasn't she? And also is quite opposed to power
1: Yeah, and I heard what she said about Why would they want to live under the government well, That doesn't look after them
0: Right, she and said, make like, them fight the Taliban." Yeah, like what was that assumption? Why would people assume that they would ally with external forces ag- against the Taliban when their own government is so corrupt and has disappointed them? I think that's true of all the world's countries. In fact, all right, let's have a look at these uh, comments about our last podcast with Jeremy Gilbert. Where do you get these comments from? Or does Angela get them off of the? Email I get list? the
1: comments in the previous episode. She gets the.
2: General email on this one. Now time for comments.
0: Well, this is this was this says, this is from Trey H. Jordan. These are from social media. I don't take this plug for socialism. It's just a more unified message for the middle class to actually focus on the problem, the government. Hmm. Well done, Trey. Marconius Maximus, is there a point to living anymore? Oh, Mar- Marconius, yes. We seem to be on a treadmill of word salads and no real progress. All is corrupt. All human beings do is destroy all of nature without any remorse, living for money or currencies. Hashtag empty, broken up. I thought you might be able to give
1: him a nice
0: upbeat. Yeah, Marconius and Trey. Look, right, this is what I say. I don't, agree with many of the antiquated decaying ideas of the last century particularly given how they played out but if you reach further back into our nature there is in the arcane mystery and what i mean by that is sort of tribal societies which of which they many are egalitarian although some are hierarchical a different template for how we might live what you are i think diagnosing as a kind of a a bland, a, a kind of, what do I want to say, a horizonless, a pitiless nihilism, I think is systemic and contained, Marconis. There is a different way. It will not be easy. It's not easy to even change your own life as an individual, but it is possible, let alone change societies. But you... You don't, you must have hope. You can have hope. It is possible to have hope. You don't need hope at all. You can carry on like that. But I'm telling you, mate, there is something beyond the word salad. There is real meaning. It's accessible internally and externally. Now let's have a listener shout out. Should we do a, should we do
1: a, Uh, oh yeah.
0: We could do a jingle for that. Listener shout outs. Do you think, what do you think people think when they hear that?
1: <laughs> that you're a hip-hop MC?
0: <laughs> I wonder if it's that.
1: You did say that, though, when you were giving notes.
0: Did I? I said, I want to be like a hip-hop uh, yeah, MC. Yeah, Really? I said you said that hip-hop.
1: I w- you said hip-hop.
0: I don't think I said I want to be a hip-hop MC. <laughs> no. Because that, no, that was the... 46. <laughs> Toby Hawk said, thank you for all of your hard work. When I'm cleaning, I listen to Russell on Luminary. It's the only reason I got the subscription. And I'm currently listening from be- from the beginning again and taking notes. God, well done. I'm looking forward to seeing Russell at the Brighton Dome in November. He has helped me to get through a very difficult time and is truly an inspiration. I have so much love for him. Is this coming out this Saturday? Yes. This podcast. Toby, is that before Brighton? Presumably so.
1: Well, he said what, what date did he say Brighton was?
0: He says November. <laughs> oh. Well, that November's got 30 days. November, April, November. No, 31. You're
1: not, not going to Brighton this weekend, are you? I don't You're think so. You're going to Bournemouth so. today.
0: Listen, Toby, if this is not the past, and but the indeed the present, I want you to come up to me and go, it's me, Toby Hawkes. And then and then maybe say something like, ding-a-ling-a-ling, ding-dong, like that, and it will be really weird. So I'll go, what? Oh, here's that thing. It's coming to reality. So get to me and go, ding-a-ling-a-ling, ding-dong. And I'll think, oh my God, reality's gone mad. So do that, and then we'll have a talk. Thank you for your compliments. Again, I've become conscious that people will be listening to this in order to hear Sarah, Sarah Chase, although a good many people, Jen, will be zipping through this, won't they? No,
1: but don't you think it's amazing that 80% stay? They're
0: enjoying it.
1: I skip past every intro of every podcast.
0: Like Mark Maron? I,
1: all of them, don't care.
0: P- Rogan? Don't want to know your
1: intro, I want to hear the podcast. I don't want to know what you think of what the podcast was.
0: Right, you know, what, what about Adam Buxton? Or
1: any of your, but his intros are the podcast, really. Mm. Like our intro. Okay, that's nice All right, well that's
0: a good way of looking at it Um, I've
1: said a lot of nice things today
0: What what were they? The thing about Sarah Chase The
1: thing about children The thing about romanticism
0: Yeah, okay, these are nice things Could you cut them out from (laughs) the... No, these are all good things Let's have a listen to Sarah Chase now A wise woman, an elder Someone to walk the path with full of great grace and deep wisdom. Trying to achieve equality with the
2: annihilation
0: of category is not a no, successful that, route. Yes,
2: that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never it the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology.
0: What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And Welcome to Russell Brand.
2: Under the Skin.
0: Sarah, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. You're more than welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, Sarah, (laughs) we got your information, as you know, of Sebastian Junger. He told us we should talk to you because of the question, I suppose, because of an an acknowledgement and a a demonstration of his own humility, he must have recognised that we were asking him questions that you'd be better qualified to answer.
2: Well, that's kind of him. We've known each other since we were three. No way. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a kind of mind merge, I think.
0: You've written books like *On Corruption in America* and *What's at Stake: Thieves of State*. Why corruption threatens global security? Um, oh, wow! You've worked with Mike Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and you've advised at the top levels of the U.S. military. Bloody hell, Sarah! What well, can you can you please? Uh, you've, like, I suppose a lot of our content. Both on YouTube and in this podcast, "Under the Skin" focuses on institutional corruption, the intransigence of the modern-day and, you know, historic political system, the inability of ordinary people to meaningfully influence the Democratic Party, the relative insignificance of the differences between the two uh, competing parties in American politics, and indeed, you know, most anglophonic countries have comparable systems when it comes to crunch time or it comes to the perspective of the ordinary voter or citizen from having looked at things from the inside what do you think should be our priorities which areas of public and political life would you bring your focus to are you interested in surveillance do you think that there's been a misuse of power during the pandemic do you think that we're too in bed with big tech and big business what changes do you think ordinary people should focus on and a new emergent political party what principles would they build their um manifesto around in order to make a a real impact so that's a hell of a cluster of questions right there
2: It is, um, and I absolutely agree with your um, diagnosis. Uh, I think it's important to understand, and, and, and the way you put this indicates you do, that corruption is not just, you know, a single quid pro quo type transaction between an individual venal political official and some businessman. In fact, it's kind of become like the operating system of networks, right? And these networks are often quite poor at governing. um, But in fact, their intent is not to govern. So if you look worldwide, for example, at the COVID crisis, as you mentioned, at the economic meltdown of 2008, at two lost wars in the last two decades, at galloping environmental, what do you call it, devastation, And then look at the executives of the industries involved here, right? Um, Financial investment firms, pharmaceutical giants, uh, real estate moguls, defense contracting companies, fossil fuel, uh, and such companies. And, And these executives are often cycling in and out of government. In the United States, we call this the revolving door. But that also implies that it's like an individual, you know, pushing a door between his business and the government. In fact, this is how the networks solidify their control over both the, 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 the political structure and power and uh, economic power. And often you have out and out criminals involved in these networks. And so um, the role of the members of these networks who are in government is not so much to fill their own pockets or even direct contracts towards their buddies, you know, in whatever contracting company it might be, although they do that. But the really important role they play is to bend and distort and weaponize and hollow out the institutions and agencies of, you know, that they're in charge of. in other words, what they do is wrench government around from its stated goal of serving the people to make it serve the corrupt network instead. And so because of this structure, I'm a little bit reluctant to hive off one piece and say, "Oh, let's focus on tech," or "Oh, let's focus on defense contractors," because I really think I think it's a deeper problem that on the surface really has to do with money and politics. But more deeply than that, and this is where I love some of the other interviews you have gotten into about materialism and, and kind of where we are in this stage of our development as a species, uh, we have turned money into the sole measuring rod for, you know, kind of marking. It's the yardstick that measures whether we're winning or losing, whether we're succeeding or not. And as a result, those who get their hands on a lot of the stuff, they're in a race with no finish line. If it's a mark of social standing, Rather than something, you know, that you need in order to do something or get something that you want. If it's just a mark of social standing, well, there's no, there's no such thing as enough, right? Because, I mean, Russell, he's making, you know, his latest album, you know, made all of this, so then I have to make more than him and, and so on. And in the process, these networks, so they, they, they grab hold of political power in order to, you know, Um, deflect the opposition or make it easier for them to maximize their wealth. For example, by weakening consumer protection regulations, weakening anti-monopoly enforcement and law, and um, environmental regulations and enforcement. So all of these things, when they're in power, they weaken all of those To the detriment of the citizens and also of course of this gorgeous planet that we live on you know. And and so um, the result is everything of real worth and value. Be it what's the land, what's on the land, what's under the land, um, human creativity human labor, um, everything, is converted into, not even money anymore, into zeros in bank accounts, right? I mean, into electronic signals. So this is, I mean, you asked a big question and I'm giving you a pretty big answer, which is to say, we, the people, have got to overcome our sort of identity divisions and realize that the enemies of all of us are the super rich, whatever political party they may belong to. Because guess what? They end up, you know, laughing around the dinner table, you know, behind closed doors while we're scratching our eyes out, you know, between labor labor and conservative or or Democrat and Republican.
0: Yes. Yes, that's a thank you for that. That's a I recognize the question was um, immense and thank you for covering so much of what I touched on. From what you said early on about the revolving door metaphor, it's more that the problem is the door rather than the individuals that are passing through it, that there is a systemic and entrenched corruption. That it, But it, the point of it is that you can alter and change the individuals within it without altering significantly the outcome. When we had Yanis Varoufakis on here, he talked about being in the EU briefly as leader of Syriza or the co-leader of Syriza before Syriza sort of just went the way that these things go and bowed to administrative and bureaucratic pressure. And he said that even the most powerful person within the EU, the Chancellor, he recognised that that person had no power, that their power was only the power afforded to them by that role. If they breached the role in any way they would be removed from it. So it, in a sense, shows you that there is no meaningful power even in the upper echelons of political systems. And uh, That have stayed with me, that, because like, you're dealing with, even at the level of very powerful people, you're not going to get real change because the system is set up for its own preservation, first and foremost, and as you described, to limit the ability of... Of governments to stand in the way of the pursuit of profit and to mask the these actions from ordinary people and to continually stymie and stifle dissent. <laughs> Hence, how it works in conjunction with the media, or at least that's an example of how it works. Um, taking it much to a much more mundial level, and um, you know, which in a sense seems foolish given the extent and depth of your experience. Just the other day. In my country, England, I went to the hospital to visit a friend. It was a Sunday. Walking through the corridors, I didn't see any people. Nobody works there anymore. It was, as you say, kind of hollowed out. When you were talking about these institutions, and I know you mean administrative bureaucratic agencies, but this is obviously, in a sense, still a public health uh, building. This hospital, it was empty. And it made me feel like, like to your point about the sort of unconscious and insatiable demand for profit or in however that is, whether that's private profit or GDP at the sort of international level, that it's, um, that it's an unassailable and uh, what do I want to say, Sisyphean endeavour that can never be fulfilled. Um And it made me think that other ideologies are possible, I thought, while I was there. Why not have a whole community built around that hospital? Why not have 10, 20, 30 people working there, people that greet you when you arrive, people that talk to relatives, people that are in rota working on the cleaning, the provision of food, everything. That whole ideology you can see has been bent to the maximisation of profit, even though it is nominally, for now at least, a public uh, is a public interest you know um, institution um, and then again quite conversationally a mate of mine was saying how like we you know when his in broadband went down his internet went down to try and talk to a human being that you know it's the ordinary experience that all of us have you end up talking to someone in another country in this case India and the, the impossibility of like talking to a human being it would be possible it's not unfeasible to have a situation where a particular outfit even if it's something like that's technologically advanced. You know, I'm not an anarcho-primitivist. I don't think we should all be sat around without tech. I think tech is magnificent. I'm pretty down with comfort. I just feel like that what under ideologically underwrites this stuff has gotten out of control, and it is feasible to have as the focus of our society and our social models the experience of being human, given that that's what... All of us are primarily experiencing. That's what all of our reality is determined by. So, that rather than an abstract idea such as profit should be the centripedal component. So, like, I felt like, yeah, why not have a situation where it's like, oh, this little, this two mile area is covered by this little organization? I'm t- talking about syndicalism. I'm talking about breaking down centralized structures, creating confederacies instead of centralized agencies. And I wondered if, like, this idea of breaking things down and sort of, in a sense, something as radical as um, the abandonment of certain economic principles that people don't like to countenance. I wonder if you, from your experience advising in government and working with these people, do you think that there's, do you think that that has merit, that kind of way of thinking? Uh,
2: I think it does have merit. Uh, I don't think many of the elites that I have advised would say that it has merit. So that's the distinction. It's fascinating what you're saying. I went back when I wrote. Uh, my most recent book on corruption in America, um, to look at the last time in history that the world seemed to be so in the grip of these transnational, integrated, corrupt or even kleptocratic networks. And I found the period between about 1870 and about 1935. and I hadn't expected to spend as much time and effort on that period of time as I ended up doing because I found it so interesting because the parallels were almost identical. But at the time, there, were, there was a much greater consciousness of this kind of network corruption as the enemy on the part of most ordinary people. So I I focused on the United States, but I think the same is true in the UK and the rest of Europe, that there were very sophisticated and courageous um, uh, opposition movements, including the labor movement and then including also political movements that were actually raising a lot of the issues you just did, including, and you said you're not an anarcho-what, primitivist? (laughs) One of the really interesting movements was the anarchist movement. And what's fascinating is we all assume that um, they wanted no government, and that's not what they wanted at all. They wanted something much closer to what you're talking about, what they called a cooperative commonwealth. Where, you know, different branches of industry would be owned by the people who worked in them and would uh, interact through, you know, representative delegations and things like that. And I mean, I don't think their model for a different type of economy was that thoroughly, carefully blueprinted, but it certainly was along the lines of what you're suggesting. And the other thing. That's interesting is many of the reforms that they and, and the labor unions and another movement in the United States, which was farmers, you know, way off in the countryside in their covered wagons were coming together for meetings and for weekly, um, uh, you know, lectures and things like that. And they developed some of the most sophisticated potential solutions to what you're talking, to, you know, to the issues that we're raising here several of which were in fact adopted. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, I think what you're suggesting has tons of merit. It requires, as you said, placing society's value on something other than zeros and, in bank accounts. And you mentioned the GDP. Why is not only GDP, but GDP growth the measure of the health of a country. Why couldn't we come up with a different measure which would then incentivize different types of policies? Um, There's something else that really distressed me in doing this historical research. I asked myself, okay, how did we get out of that? Like, there was certainly a period starting around 1935 ish and running till about 1980 when constraints, without the significant changes you're talking about, but constraints were put on this runaway profit seeking, uh, on the destruction being visited on consumers and the environment, um, on you know, the exploitation of labor. What, what allowed for those reforms? I had at first thought that it was the opposition movements who had succeeded. In fact, they were all destroyed before their recommendations were adopted. The eight hour day was another one. And what it took seems to be two world wars, a great depression, and a pandemic that makes the current one look like a joke. That's two genocides and the use of the nuclear bomb. In other words, that system, which we are now resembling today, drove us into almost unimaginable calamities. And let's look at what we've just lived through. Again, uh, economic meltdown that doesn't quite you know, it's not quite as bad as the depression, a pandemic that's not quite as bad as the flu of 1918, two lost wars, well, they weren't world wars. I mean, how big is it gonna have to get before we're able to change the political economy in ways that you recommend? And my question is, are are we going to be able to do it? Could we band together to make what you envisage happen before the calamity.
0: I think the problem, Sarah, somewhat lies in the fact that the things that you have cited as problematic, inventoried in fact, to the interests that are most dominant in, the, in the, the way that we manage society, those were beneficial. Those wars are beneficial if you're an arms manufacturer. The pandemic is beneficial if you're a pharmacological manufacturer. So like as I sort of point out often in my live work and occasionally online, the the reason that change doesn't happen is because for the interests that matter things are working okay. It, um, as a, a, a recent guest on the show uh, Luke Kemper, he may have been citing James C. Scott, uh, said that you know it's not a bug, it's a feature. The way that things are going wrong, the problems that we're encountering these like it's pretty sort of commonly understood that there's been a, the biggest wealth transfer in history has taken place during the last 18 month period so from whose perspective is it a problem it's a problem if you lost a loved one it's a problem if you've seen your freedom impinged it's a problem if there if there are measures that you don't ideologically agree with but it ain't a problem if you if it's led to profit so for me that's an analytic tool that's always worth deploying, the, the commonly understood as yeah, who benefits. If someone benefits from this situation, then it's how is it a how is it a problem? How is it a problem? And if you start to think like that, people necessarily like people tend to start smearing you as an individual and calling you a conspiracy theorist. But that's why I'm very interested to speaking to someone with your level of experience and expertise. Um we're just looking at some of the things that you've done, like you've worked quite closely with the military. What, in the what capacity? Uh, like, given now that I've only spoken to you for fifteen minutes and i have getting a, an, an understanding of the your, your perspective, how did, what were they thinking when they even employed you? What what capacity were you employed in?
2: That that that's a a good question. Actually, <laughs> I um, used to be a radio reporter, and when nine eleven happened, I went to report the fall of the Taliban and then it was like I'm sick of making my living on other people's drama. Let me try to do something for a change. So I bailed and wound up in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And after, you know, 6 or 7 years, there just weren't that many Americans, you know, who had lived in downtown Kandahar with no barbed wire and no sandbags and who spoke Pashto and things like that. So um, wow. And yes, I think that there was a certain masochistic element on the part of some of the military leaders who uh, employed me. Um, but to be fair, I do think they were, the, the, the men and women in uniform, certainly the ones I worked for, um, were not the same as the... As the defense contractors, if you see what I mean. They mm. genuinely were trying to do the best that they could. And they were looking for people who knew something. Um, and so, it, it, you know, and so that's the capacity in which I was employed. And I was employed to be a kind of advisor on what's actually going on in Afghanistan. Um, and I tried to get them in direct contact with ordinary Afghan people. Because that's where I came to understand. I I didn't go there planning to focus on corruption. It was the Afghans who brought it to me. So there's another thing we hear about corruption is, oh, you know, it's just a, it's part of their culture over there. Well, Nobody likes being ripped off by their government. You know, like that's not part of our DNA as a species. And so it was actually the Afghans who brought me their complaints about corruption. And that's how I started really working on it. And I started it, started on it from that perspective, which is we are going to lose if we don't address corruption, we being the international community that was engaged in Afghanistan. And then I went around and looked at a bunch of other countries and found exactly the same patterns in places as widespread as Honduras, Nigeria, Nepal, Uzbekistan, you know, Lebanon. The structures were fundamentally the same. And so that's why after the election of 2016, I realized, uh oh, it's time to look in the mirror. Wow. And what you were describing when you said, um, you know, who is benefiting from the disastrously failed policies that we've been experiencing in the West, who's benefiting? you know, when you're talking about developing countries, there's this fashionable kind of conversation about, quote, fragile or failing states, right? Afghanistan typically typifies a fragile or failing state. And I would say, you know, they're fragile or failing as states, but the networks that are running them are not trying to run a proper state, they're trying to enrich themselves. And the fact that the state is failing is actually to their benefit. And so that's another way of looking at what you and I have just been discussing. I mean, are we, is the UK and is the United States, are, are, are our countries, if we really look at them honestly, are they not starting to resemble fragile and failing states?
0: Yeah, they are when you encounter the infrastructure. You can see that's the direction in which they're heading. You can increasingly see that the function of government is to extract money from the public purse and place it in private hands. My mate James, who's from, uh, he's not from, but oh, he is actually, he's Ghanaian. Anyway, he told me about like about 20 years ago, curiously when um, Nixon was like foreign minister, there was some project in Ghana to build a dam or whatever and there was aluminium mineral mining was meant to be happening. All this sort of stuff was going on. And he just explained like the level of corrupt and that it was meant to be generating power for this whole area of ghana and that they built this dam and the project was a total disaster like it didn't end up working to to um you know to uh, to create hydraulic power or anything and you would imagine it a failure except for of course for its state for its implicit or uh, ulterior aims it was a total success it extracted money from ghana put it in the hands of whoever built that dam whatever construction firm. Became a total success. Talking about like the sort of, um, in a sense, I, I would want to call it. I'm tre- reaching for something that doesn't sound too woo 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 woo, but I'm I'm finding in my mind the energetic color palette, which doesn't seem um, nearly unwoo woo enough. But I spoke to an economist on here recently, and like I said, what is the underlying, given that the mutability? And sustainability of capitalism, what is the underlying energy? And like sort of, in a sense, it sounded like sort of selfishness and greed. When you sort of describe, when you make the distinction between the American military and sort of the objectives of private interests in, for example, Afghanistan, I felt like I wanted to clarify that I recognise that the archetypal energy under the military can include things like duty, obviously does, heroism, self-sacrifice, discipline, important and powerful values. I've never had that kind of or I certainly shed the adolescent attitude of being sort of anti-police and anti-military in the way I once was, because I can now see that the individuals that make them up, I recognize what kind of backgrounds they come from. I recognize what kind of people they are. And I recognize at least uh, as an observer, the kind of values that are, are present there. And I suppose in a way, like with, with all of the analysis that I'm undertaking across my like various projects, I'm looking at what is the energy that underwrites this? Like we're in, A lot of time, even something like football, I do a lot of content about football in this country. And you find when you look at it closely that there is a sort of a great deal of spirit And community and what's appealing to people even even when they're sort of feeding at the various um, portals that are afforded by capitalism people are coming to it with quite pretty optimistic and idealistic underpinnings you know like where all of the entertainment industries that have become increasingly commodified sanitized um saccharinized if you can use that um like I still have in them beauty and storytelling and mystery. And I feel like that the only way that we can be optimistic, particularly when you um, identified what it took to bring about, like, you know, the Roosevelt's um, New Deal or whatever, like, you know, this many world wars, this depression, this pandemic, that, that it's important to bear in mind that all material reality is underwritten by the experience of, that we have as individuals and collectively, and that if we change our consciousness and our perception, which is why the media works so hard and why these agencies work so hard and why propaganda propaganda machinery works so hard and the police and the state, I believe to some degree is in order to prevent a sudden radical shift in perception that would immediately and overnight change the world. If, people, if there's a general strike, if people won't participate, if people become non-compliant, there's nothing you can do about it. And it's just, you know, there's a lot of machines to prevent that.
2: A hundred percent. And I think the other thing that I, or um, a technique that I've noticed, again, around the world deployed by these corrupt self-dealing networks is to divide up the people along identity lines. Um, and Lebanon, looking at the Lebanon anti-corruption uprising starting in 2015, was a really clear example. But you know, and people will say, "Well, that's Lebanon." But then I look at the United States, and and it's easy to say the Republicans are playing the identity card more um, in in very ugly ways. But I have to say, I feel like the elites on both sides are actually spending more time focusing on identity issues which inherently are going to split us up, um, rather than, and we, ordinary people, are not resisting that manipulation. And from what you say, what I think is that shift in mindset is gonna have something to do with connections, and that's connection among people. But it's also, you know, I mean, at the moment, we're talking a lot about white supremacy. I'm starting to feel that white supremacy is just a subset of a bigger problem, which is Homo sapiens supremacy. We're just one species on this planet. And if we can begin to reweave the webs of connection that bind us together with the other myriad living creatures on this planet, which don't have any less right to live on it than we do. That, I think, is part of the mindset shift that you're talking about. And I think a second part has to do with quality versus quantity. I think quantity has become the default value. So you talked about GDP earlier, and it's really growing GDP, right? Size of GDP, size of population. I mean, I listen to lots of, you know, listen and read lots of media, sort of what you'd call mainstream media. They all treat a falling population as some kind of catastrophe. Well. How exactly how many more homo sapiens do there have to be on this planet? You know what I mean? Like, why is growth? My understanding is that infinite growth on a finite body is called cancer and it's fatal. So how do we wrench ourselves away from the easier counting of value by quantity? A larger cup of coffee is better than a smaller cup of coffee. Well, what about the quality of the stuff in the cup? And what about the quality of our interactions? Um, So, those I think are the two big mindset changes that you're right, we're going to have to work hard to make them. Sarah, even
0: life itself, like the, you know, if you think about some of the data that has emerged around mortality during this pandemic, there's a sort of idea that our function is to just keep sustain life (laughs) sustain it you know and like but we all know what about the qualitative component of our individual and collective lives what about dealing with the poverty and inequality and suffering we see all around us on a personal level? I sometimes reflect and I I pray for the epiphany that will take me there. Then would I be happier if I just said, you know what? I'm going to open my home up to refugees and homeless people and just live with other people communally. Now I'm not going to crave and treasure privacy, comfort and luxury. I'm going to liberate myself from my man-made manacles to, Quote Blake. And, you know, the idea is frightening to me the idea of letting go of my own comfort my own grip on materialism my own uh, in- in- entrenchant individualism no doubt learned from the system that I grew up in learned from, became a celebrity in a devotee of this system. My apostasy is this, it didn't work for me, it doesn't work for me it's a fundamentalist ideology that is, uh, those horizons are so f- uh, far apart Heart. We can, we don't even know we're in it. We don't question it anymore. And the, what you said about identity, I think, is significant. And I think you're right. I think it's not a problem that can be that you can target one individual um, set of uh, political beliefs with. It feels because it, it makes sense to you, really, that if you are like a sort of a right down in there QAnon Trump supporting person, but you know, your son or daughter is trans. You're going to have the experience of understand, and, and I would hope vice versa, you know, that if you are a, a non-binary person, but your beloved grandfather votes Trump. And I've noticed a lot of like, almost very in my country as well as yours, like almost people directly trying to go, this is how to have your Brexit argument at Christmas. This is how to, if your relatives are talking about Britain. And I was like, what I felt like is, well, we ain't got time for this crap. We're we're human beings with one another. I sometimes think, and this is what I was actually, to tell you the truth, Sarah, I was really interested in talking to Sebastian about, is is it just that we can't, we're tribal bloody apes. We can't can't conceptualise a global life with so many, not not even fractured, distinct, discrete, different forms of identity, different ways of worshipping, different ways of being, and neither should it be a problem. If you want to organise a community in this way, Do it. If you want to organise a community this way, do it. Just let people leave the community if they want to and don't hurt people. Like, it doesn't really matter. Okay, have guns. Okay, identify in whatever way you want. What difference does it make? It only becomes a problem when you try to centralise power, which doesn't benefit the individuals within those communities, but benefits the people at the top of the hierarchies that are able to corral together whether it was agriculture the industrial revolution or the more recent and um, all consuming tech revolutions that just turn these things into markets and turn us against one another
2: i suspect he talked to you about mobile um hunter-gatherers and how that is how um you know it worked back then you could leave your band you know it was dangerous to do so because you needed a group of people to be able to survive but the mobility gave a certain autonomy to people i think another problem i mean what again we get into evolution and i'm you can interview an evolutionary (laughs) biologist but um, it seems to me from the reading i've done that the main social revolution That Homo sapiens operated on the primate order was egalitarianism in the early days. Primates are very hierarchical and we have been primates for millions of years and we've only been Homo sapiens for, you know, a few hundred thousand. So, so we contain both tendencies. We contain both the hierarchical and the sort of us versus them. We are, we are hardwired to recognize and react um, to who's the in-group and who's the out-group, who is our in-group and who's everybody else. And there have been unbelievable experiments conducted about that, where two sets of young boys who were identical were put in separate camps and gave themselves separate names and the amount of violence. That broke out between the two groups was so extreme that they had to stop the experiment, so there's a hard wiring of that, but what makes us human rather than apes is the egalitarian side. You know we need both, but the problem is that at the moment it's the hierarchical and divide the ordinary people up so they can't join together. It's that side that seems to be on top. Let me just say one other thing, is that the way we imposed egalitarianism on ourselves back when we were hunter-gatherers, right? So we're talking 150,000 years ago, was the whole band would join together to discipline a kind of would-be alpha who was stealing the meat, essentially. But it had to be the whole band joined together once it was only part of the band. Then you get into factionalism, and then the idea was delegitimized. The idea of reigning the guy in was delegitimized. So the dividing us into factions is a very sophisticated survival strategy for the meat hogs, for the food thieves. So that's that, there were a couple of other things that you said that struck me. One was you and your addiction to comfort. Uh, I suspect it's not, you know, I mean, I don't know enough about your life to know how addicted you are, but it is a drug. And I feel that this is the drug that the super rich have handed out to the masses right, is a minimum level of comfort, is our hot water, is our, you know, um, I mean, to the point where it's too hard for us to turn a key in a door, we have to just press a button so that the door will pop open, or, you know, Alexa, right, we can't get up. And to the point where our bodies are becoming less and less part of our lives, or take, you know, Amazon deliveries, it's so convenient to have your amazon delivered you know the next day but at what cost to the workers is it really worth having people having to load the packages in diapers because they're not given bathroom breaks i mean seriously so i do think that i think there's a reflex to seek more and more comfort but comfort Doesn't always bring happiness either. This is going to sound, you know, like holier than thou kind of thing, but I actually live much of the time in a cabin in the woods in West Virginia with no running water. And so I fetch water in the stream and it's actually really pleasant. Now I know that it's a choice and I can always leave and go back and have a hot bath, you know. So I'm aware that this is, it's not quite as bad as thoreau he had his wife cooking his meals every day <laughs> but you know it's not i'm not like you i'm not a, an anarcho primitivist either but i will say that there is a lot of life that i gain in fetching water from a stream and in cutting my wood
0: yeah the, yeah, the, the famous Buddhist maxim, of course, that the, like it connects you to reality. And the, when you said that, and I know you're not quite finished. Forgive me. I saw you glance down. And please continue. Um, but like, I just wanted to say that when you talked about disconnection earlier, when the image of the Amazon workers and the conditions under which they travail, that that we. It's that the individualism that I experience and the individualism that I see is about disconnection. Individualism by its nature is disconnection. And our boundaries are, this is why, in my opinion, there is a requirement for a spiritual dimension to the organization of public life. Because if you just take materialistic, rational approach, well, you're a separate person, you're going to die one day. (laughs) Get what you can, look after the people you love, that's that. But if you sort of start to feel like, hold on a minute, the qualitative experience of my life alters from fetching water in a stream, or if I'm do something for another person I start to feel different like that shows me that there is a you know of course I'm sure that there will be scientific tools and are indeed to examine what happens when you do something altruistic or what you breathe in when you are in nature when you behave in the way that we evolved to behave when we live in proxy or within the conditions that we evolved to live in then there are rewards for that i don't know if there needs to be a moral or ethical dimension to that certainly more eastern mystical traditions shy away from the more um, uh, monotheistic um, hierarchy of moral behaviors and the puritanical inflections that you sometimes find around them but I know that in these uh, gorgeous cells of luxury that we find ourselves in, there, there can be something disorienting. You know, like I'm sort of awake to all of this stuff. And the other day I took my two daughters who are three and five to the cinema and we saw like this boss baby. And it was just such a like a sort of a such a f- assault of idiocy. To watch it, and then we went to a kind of a, the arcade next door. All the machines, the noise—it was the disorienting. And I sort of said, "Like, look, look at me. I talk about this stuff all the time. I think about this stuff all the time, and I'm still participating in this giddying spectacle of you know. I'm not going right. Come on, kids. Let's go to the woods and we'll like build a fire. We do do stuff like that sometimes as well. We do have fires. We do cook things. We do do things that are you know connected. And real, but it is seductive and it's uh, there's a kind of a, a personal incumbency, an ideological incumbency it's very hard to break out of the 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 kind of um, what do I want to say the uh, atrophying and unsovereign throne that we are all placed upon in our tiny myopic kingdoms.
2: You spoke with Ian McGilchrist, and I think he's all yes. over this issue, you know, and I loved how you kind of reframed some of his scientific language about right and left hemisphere into, so the arcade and all of that is very left hemisphere, right? It's, it's you know, kind of um, spellbinding us with the products of our own, you know, creation. Whereas the right hemisphere is the side, according to him, that's much more engaged with the reality of the real world. And you were going under his scientific language to talk about mystery and talk about now you're using moral and ethical, but there I think you were it's spiritual. Yeah. And spirituality can have a moral dimension but it doesn't have to either it's about awe it's about reverence it's about understanding that we are embedded in a world whose dynamism and interactions we haven't begun to understand Um. and the very least we owe it is to approach it with reverence and awe and gratitude and the more time we spend in arcades the more cut off we are from that. And the more we think that we are sovereign when we're not. And that goes back to homo sapiens supremacy.
0: There's a danger in in these synthesized environments we find ourselves in. And what you say about awe is remarkable and powerful. And it's the wrong word to use, resource, because it sort of indicates the biases that we already have, that everything is seen as a resource, whether it's our environment or even our personal experiences. Turning everything into a resource is part of the problem. But having the experience of awe, recognizing those connections is... I, I and it is is beautiful and necessary and this recognition that we are you know look at our kind forever at the summit forever at the summit oh we know this now we didn't know this then well, what what mysteries await us now in the when we still don't understand how consciousness occurs then there are still like in the in the quantum realm kind of more poetic movements than phys- than movements as we would understand conventionally in physics and like the, the, yeah this sort of uh, like this combination of lethargy apathy uh, arrogance and uh, sort of uh, dumb carnality that we found ourselves delivered to well, can never be rolled back without this without a spiritual experience without some kind of damascene flash,
2: and the spiritual experience I think and this also is something that Ian McGilchrist emphasizes that spiritual that spiritual experience has to come from an embodied interaction with the natural world. And the natural world includes us, you know, it includes human beings, but it's the, instead of thinking that body and spirit are separate and opposed, in fact, body and spirit are inextricable, I think. And so, you know, it is by going into the woods and touching the bark of a tree and then imagining, wow, what does it, what might it feel like to look down at the world the way this tree does, you know, or whatever it might be, that you begin to expand yourself by a combination of how you physically interact with other living beings and then how you imaginatively project yourself into their experience and their perspective and so in a strange way by making yourself smaller you make yourself bigger yeah does that make any sense at all yeah it makes
0: a lot of sense and this is what it brought to mind sarah i was thinking about the role of crisis in the kind of transcendent experience that one might imagine if 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 equipped with the neurological um, vision and understanding as sort of a synaptic mesh that a persona operates within the the trauma of crisis i think could sort of be said to spill you out of your the ordinary rails of your daily experience and make you open to another reality as i'm, I'm a 12-step recovery person so like i've had that experience of you know this is reality this is reality and trying to augment it and hold it together for chemical dependency and when that reaches a certain idea you have to stop and it's so exposing and frightening that you have to open yourself up to new experiences and a new understanding which is in the case of like the 12 steps is the particular recovery that i work is explicitly spiritual it's like firstly let go of your own self-centeredness you're obsessed with yourself and your own wants and desires and fears. And if that's all you care about, you're gonna have a pretty restricted experience on this planet and like the natural world, I suppose it has the potential if you're open to it and able to commit to it, to kind of reset you, to reset you. to say, Oh, yeah, this is what I'm evolved for. I was born. I was supposed to be born into this. It's an, an accident that I was born into this uh, shellacked world of right angles and hard services and hard exchanges. And yeah you are right about that, and I'm beginning to feel Sarah an emergent unity even in the conversations that I'm having. Thank you for the the advance of sort of making me to make the shift from ethics and morality to the spiritual because in a sense ethics and morality are the it's sort of an a sort of an attempt to sort of scripturalize or instantiate you know uh, 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 and reify something that is ineffable. But, and and when I try to understand what is it, what do I mean with spirituality? I mean that there's more to life than just what I want, and that that actually there is a oneness that overrides apparent separation. And and I suppose if you accept that premise, the ongoing determination to isolate, segregate, separate, and stir division is that's a necessary component in preventing change you'd have to do that if people start to recognize i'm not going to argue with people on the basis of what they might reckon about this issue or that issue i'm just going to recognize that we can't change the world unless people start behaving cooperatively and demanding or not participating in the current order you know what i mean like i i can see that a profound individual and social transition is required and personally i'm beginning to see I'm starting to experience it as an individual recognizing its limitations and recognizing the limitations of any individual. Like, you know, like the the, 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 the sort of a tendency for iconoclasm when it reaches the point of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Gandhi and the mistakes they may have made. I feel like is, well, this isn't really helpful now because like these people, once we start getting into the martyrs and the mistakes that they have made, I feel like what we're essentially saying is. Nothing can change. And we have a kind of politics and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say from your position on the inside, that no no longer offers you a vision of change. It offers you a sort of technocratic management of, you know, this is how we will manage the apocalypse for you. You know, that's the vision we're offered.
2: Uh, Especially because as you point out, not only are the super rich, you know, kind of making out from the catastrophe, but there are these big fat rings of kind of enablers, softer and softer enablers who, you know, may not be making millions, but they have comfortable salaries and they're not that interested in changing the, the overall, they're also not, in, sorry, they're not that interested in changing the overall system and they're also not that interested in taking a hard look at the mirror and seeing the degree to which they have been part of the problem But I I would love to go back, your words about crisis were so, I I think, exactly right, and it's unfortunate. But both, I think, on an individual and a societal level, we seem to need crisis. And so so the reason why I um, lit on that series of global calamities in the first half of the 20th century is because again there's a lot of good social science about how crisis in fact brings out a kind of egalitarian tendency in us i mean when the flood hits nobody's asking who you voted for or how you know how much money you earn no one's asking if you know um no one's even particularly noticing the color of your skin everybody is in it helping everyone else and so You know, when there's a broadly shared life-threatening hardship, our human egalitarian tendencies tend to come to the top. And what you're saying on a personal level, I mean, I think, again, goes way, way, way back. Shamans talk about being dismembered, you know, like they have the experience of literally being pulled limb from limb. And I think, you know, what you went through is, as you say, you get to the nadir and somehow it opens you in a way that almost nothing else could open you. I think acute depression has a similar, can have a similar impact on people. And so um, I think I also remember you mentioning Joseph Campbell. Are you a Joseph Campbell reader?
0: Yes, I like Joseph Campbell a lot and I like Carl Jung a lot and I like... uh, archetypes and i like these sort of the indication that there's ulterior realms templates and patterns recurring perennially this excites me a great deal because in this time of relativism having recourse to something actual for me, it seems pretty bloody obvious. If you look at a leaf, is a pattern. Uh, you know, an atom is a pattern. A planet is a pattern. Patterns do happen. If they happen in the material realm, why would they not happen in the psychic realm? Uh, it's for me. It's sort of it's it's plain and sort of observable. And I know some academics are sort of dismissive of Campbell, but I I, I love him.
2: I do too. And I think that fundamental insight of his that. Basically, all of the heroes in all of the folklore everywhere in the world follow a certain pattern, but that pattern always involves a descent into the nadir of some sort. And if we are to understand that the heroes of our folklore are us our models for us that we are each the hero of the story of our lives then we have to understand that to make a a life worth living in fact there's kind of no avoiding crisis there's no avoiding that depth of dismemberment and ideally, we come out of that situation, out of that acutely painful place with some insight. And then it's almost as hard to bring that insight back to the overworld, back to our community, and pass it along in some useful way. That's almost as hard as it as it is to go down into the underworld. It's a real challenge. To wow. you know, how do I, how do I make an offering of what I went through down there?
0: How have you found the return in your own life, and what, and what form has the return taken in your life from the descent into the underworlds? Which just looking at your work and the things you've written about, I can sort of guess at what there might have been aside from what personal dimensions there may have been to them. How, how have you found the return?
2: I mean, it's interesting. It's in my case much less beautifully than in your case. It's also about conveying in, I don't want to claim that the way I write is artistic, but it's that, it's conveying in words and in words that I'm trying to make hold a certain amount of beauty. The problem is that your language is sometimes unintelligible. I don't know if you've ever found that, that you speak a language because things seem so clear that is either too loud for people, it's like, can you dial it back a little, or is literally unintelligible. And I would find that before I wrote some of these things up, but when I would go from Afghanistan to Washington, when I was working for the Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I had a very strange job because unlike anybody else, I was free to roam. So when I couldn't take it in the Pentagon anymore, I would go to the boss and say, boss, I can't take it anymore. I'm going downrange. And he would basically say, be safe. You know, he sort of trusted me to find something useful to do and make a contribution. And then I would come back to Washington And it would be like, what is it? Like, do the birds fly upside down? Are the trees blue and the sky is green? I mean, I would say things that looked, that seemed so patently obvious. Like, if the people of Afghanistan are being, um, are being abused by their own government as badly as they're being abused by the Taliban, why should they take risks to fight against the Taliban? Like so long as they they hate their government because their government is stealing them blind and humiliating them, why do you expect them to to stick their necks out? You know that seemed to me a perfectly obvious proposition, and yet it was unintelligible to people in Washington. And so I, I think that's what I'm struggling with. I mean, you've asked a, a you know a, a kind of question that. Two pals, two mates would ask over beers, you know, but I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure I have it. I'm not sure I have the talent to offer up things that I um, am beginning to get a sense of in ways that will make a difference. So the least thing I want to try to do is make, is, is add some beauty to the world. How about you? How have you brought things back? I mean, do you feel that they've hit?
0: Even geographically, what you experienced is obviously pretty extreme and radical, as well as ideologically, as well as the fact that you're moving between two sort of opposed uh, state entities. That means that seems like it would be a pretty heavy thing. And in both cases, you're dealing with deeply entrenched sets of ideals and also you're competing with or trying to challenge the interests that those ideals are a front for so i'm not surprised that it was very very challenging and and that there was a must have surely been a kind of a vertigo i would think or bends you know like a kind of bend just like coming up from deep water um and for me what the the what i think about is when i began um therapy of a like a this man bruce who i like i have therapy with who's sort of a person in recovery like me and he sort of very early in the process gave me this uh, eric from book on priests and prophets that the uh, yeah like the the priest Uh, preaches the word the prophet embodies the word you must become your message you must become it and i suppose sarah that's why you know i think about like well i am still a person that's fraught with hypocrisy fraught with libidinous energies in all of the applications of that word i mean just i have life force and i feel like i have that in me and I, 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 i and i have you know egocentrism in me and I feel in some ways that I am beginning to epitomize and understand the challenges that I face be- precisely because of my flaws and failings, not because of my assets, because of my vulnerability, because of the hypocrisy, because of the challenges. And I'm finding um, what do I want to say. <clears throat> In terms of, I don't have the challenge of trying to explain the perspective of the Afghan people to wonks in Washington. That sounds like a real particular challenge that you've landed there. For me, it's more like, how do I be, How do I, you know, there has been a homecoming for me. I move around among the people, like kind of people from the kind of classes and groups that I grew up with. And I like it. I like doing live performance and I like telling them, I've seen these things and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. This is it, and and inst- trying my best to instill hope and faith in them and their own expertise, and telling them directly about my fallibility. And even though I'm standing up on a stage in front of them, like that, outside of that particular context, I don't I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't want to be in any position of particular authority. That what I want is to be among them, a member of community. That I've burned through the individualistic narrative, even though I sometimes feel. It's uh, pangs like an amputated limb. I still feel it. I feel the ego still. It's deep in me. So perhaps more than ever, I don't feel it. But I think you've got a very particular labor there because that sounds like a pretty um, radical set of circumstances that you've operated in.
2: It was. What's interesting is I find myself doing it again um, in the natural world. So, I, I had to think about it quite a bit also, like, what, what am I up to here? And I realized this is what I do. When I think something's important, I sort of drop everything and I go pitch my tent in it, be it Afghanistan or now be it in the middle of the natural world. And I, and you were talking about your vulnerabilities actually kind of being your strength in a, in a strange way, being what you, can bring to people because I don't you didn't quite say this but I think it's you know um not if I can do it you can do it but but how to put this um you know sometimes if you're interviewing an Ian McGilchrist you know I mean the guy is obviously a polymath the guy is you know, the guy is, I can't relate to him because he's so brilliant, do you know what I mean? It's like, and I was thinking about, and and often when I when I read about nature, it's people who have had this, they've been in tune with nature since they were three or something. And as you described it, I sort of felt like, well, maybe I have something to offer in not having grown up in nature, having grown up like so many of us in a city, and the, Effort that, that I'm going through to try to connect with the world that we were evolved to live in, it's, more, it's again sort of like, well, it, it might be easier for other people to identify with than these sort of, you know, people who are inherently that way. Most of us aren't anymore. So I see what you mean about our own, weaknesses being the portal through which we can connect to ordinary people and and try it's like that's the hole through which we can pass whatever that kernel of insight is that we've gained we've gotten awfully philosophical and i see i think it's probably time for you to (laughs) bug off to your next (laughs) engagement but wow
0: yeah it's been such a wonderful conversation sarah i really i've enjoyed talking to you more than i imagined possible i'd love to have you uh, on again so we can speak in more depth i'd love to do something live with you one day i i I think i'm going to read your book on corruption in america and what is at stake for my um book i do like i read a couple of books like and then i talk about them online for my mailing list and stuff and i'll do that this week and i'm going to become much more familiar with your fantastic work and your incredible storytelling and i've on a personal level i've really enjoyed your warmth and your humility and i'm fascinated by the whole um collecting water in a stream thing you're doing jealous fascinated and afraid of it so thank you so much sarah for coming on and sharing your wisdom and kindness
2: thank you i cannot uh i mean all i could do is just repeat what you just said i did not expect a conversation like this i didn't expect you to be i don't know it's like there are strings in you that play that weren't quite the strings that i thought you know i thought were in your instrument and it's a real a pleasure and an honor
0: Thank you. Thank you. You're a Beautiful person. Thank you. I'll speak with you. I'll speak with you again soon. And I'm very grateful to Sebastian for introducing us. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Me too. Have a lovely rest of your evening. Thank you, Sarah. Bye-bye, dear.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Under the Skin. With Sarah Chase, but remember, if you've got Luminary, you should be listening to Above the Noise as well. Uh, I hope you're following me. I hope you're looking at all the YouTube videos, and uh, it, you should just keep an eye out because there are new, t- new tour dates. Remember to sign up from a mailing list as well, because I talk about new stuff on there all the time. and I've got some exciting announcements coming up soon. Thank you for joining me on Under the Skin from Luminary.